This is week number five of Rare Book School 2007 of nine or ten weeks? Nine? <laughs> ten? A lot. Uh, this and next week's sessions are in Charlottesville. We then go to Baltimore. We then go to Washington, D.C. We then go back to Charlottesville and finish off in mid-October in Baltimore again. Busy us. But we're glad to see you here tonight to listen to Rare Book School lecture number 502. James Green of the Library Company of Philadelphia delivered Rare Book School lecture number 500 a week ago, and there was an exhibition of the posters advertising the first 500 lectures mounted for that occasion, and we've just remounted it so you'll have a chance to see it all the way around the first floor corridors of Alderman Library with refreshments if you stick your head in the first floor staff lounge along your perambulations. But to get to the contents of the staff lounge, you uh, have to earn it, (laughs) Uh, which will not be difficult tonight. Our speaker is Andrea Immel, who is librarian of the Coates and Children's, is curator of the Children's Library at Princeton, uh, one of the nation's most celebrated, if indeed in these days now not the most celebrated children's collection in the country, uh, and her title awaits you. Andrea Immel. Thank you very much, Terry, for inviting me to come down and give lecture 502. I'd kind of hoped to be 500, but vainglory always goes before a fall. And uh, thanks to all of you on the RBS staff who have been just fabulous and made my all-too-brief visit very memorable and leaving me longing to come back for more. And I'd like to thank all of you whose classes I dropped in today. Uh, It was a lot of fun to be back being a student, however briefly, and to catch up on a lot of things I thought that I used to know that I found I forgot all about. The subject of my presentation today is printed ephemera, or more precisely, engraved ephemera, which conveniently happens to have been the topic of this year's pre-conference. The title probably looks kind of unpromising, but I hope what I can show you by the end of the lecture is why ephemera matters, especially when we can find patterns that link it to other forms of material culture, as well as print culture, but also trends in society at large. As custodians of special collections, whether we're catalogers, collectors, or curators, Interpreting objects like a scrapbook is something we're in a position to do, and if I may be immodest, do better than just about anybody else. We're the ones that handle an array of materials every day. And so, if we want to, have countless opportunities to compare objects that may appear to have very little to do with each other, that in turn allow us to ask questions the most interesting kinds that don't have easy or expected answers that allow us to make conclusions about things way off from where we started. So I'll tell you about one such quest that led to a pot of gold, and not incidentally, Fanny Burney, a novelist who's near and dear to the director's heart. So here it goes. Scissors, prints, and paste. Frederick and Amelia Locke make a scrapbook at Norbury Park in 1791. Deep down, every curator is something of a dragon. Like smog, a curator guards a hoard and tries to know the value of everything in the glittering heap. But if the hoard is huge, it inevitably contains objects that don't look like much, like the lamp Aladdin's uncle went to the ends of the earth to find. When such a thing rises to the surface of the heap, the dragon casts an appraising eye over it wouldn't be there if it weren't priceless, it thinks. Who knows when its secrets will be unlocked? Until that time, I'll keep it safe 
and try to remember to look at it from time to time so I can figure out exactly what it is. <laughs> the story I'm about to tell is about how this dragon, or rather curator, found such a prize in the Coatesville Children's Library and coincidentally discovered who made it and why it matters. In the fall of 2001, a slim archival folder with a flag labeled Boys Scrapbook circa 1791 landed on my desk. The post-it from a staff member on the front cover asked, where should this be shelved? So I called up the bibliographic record and took out the item in question. That summer, more than 25,000 historical illustrated children's books, manuscripts, and educational toys had been put on deposit at the Coatesville Children's Library by the donor, Lloyd E. Coatesville, who has, was in the process of transferring his enormous collection in stages. Now, no manuscripts were supposed to have come in this shipment, so this one I figured must have been packed up by the art handlers by mistake. The scrapbook's wrinkled pale yellow covers with three cut-out engravings that appeared to have been colored in by a child was not exactly prepossessing. And it hadn't cost Mr. Coatson much money, but there had to have been something uniquely appealing about it, or the Bromers, a high-end antiquarian book-selling firm in Boston, wouldn't have offered it to him in the first place. Fifteen years ago, things like children's scrap, commonplace ciphering, or copybooks didn't come on the market very often because almost no one thought they were particularly interesting or valuable. So what had caught the Bromer's eyes, I wondered. I opened it up carefully, noticing that Frederick Locke, 1791, was written in a well-formed hand in the upper left-hand corner of the front wrapper. Probably not the little boy's handwriting, but maybe an older sister, or maybe his mother. Uh, there's other writing, but it's a, little, it's a little faint. Except for a few watercolors by a skilled amateur, the 22 pages of the scrapbook were neatly filled in with small pictures cut out of the prints, mainly colored by hand with watercolors. Of the two or three large prints, this one of street musicians, a monkey, a dog with a fiddle, and a cat singing a ballad, with the handwritten caption, Frederick and Amelia and company reduced to poverty, jumped <laughs> off the page. Something about the combination of that particular image with the 200-year-old joke made me chuckle. But more importantly, it connected the signature of Frederick Locke, the maker of the scrapbook. It was disconcerting, I have to admit, to be looking at an object as a disinterested professional and suddenly sensed the presence of a little boy named Frederick who had long been dead. It was as if he was trying to get my attention, and indeed, he succeeded. As I continued to leaf through the scrapbook, I found more prints with goofy captions that invited me to imagine dynamics within this unknown Locke family. The outlines of a group portrait began to emerge. Frederick, I thought, was something of a comic who seemed to be asserting himself as the younger brother by deflating the vanities of his older sisters, Amelia and Augusta. One of the most intriguing prints of all was a caricature of two dueling dwarves, the Viscount Vengeance and Lord Fury, captioned, Norbury and Frederick arrived at manhood. You will see that Frederick is Lord Fury and Norbury the Viscount Vengeance. As there was no indication that Norbury was a brother, I guessed that he and Frederick may have been friends. Unfortunately, the associated names of Locke and Norbury meant absolutely nothing to me then, so I didn't put two and two together. If I had known that Norbury was the nickname of Susan Burney Phillips' favorite son, and it alluded to Norbury Park, the home of Susan's intimate friends William and Frederica Locke, the mystery of the scrapbook would have been solved much sooner. But the scrapbook was a fine, no question about it, and I began researching the prints that Frederick had used. But I resisted the temptation to write up my findings until I knew something about the lively, funny little person who had made it. I had a hunch that the album had been preserved as a memento of a dearly beloved child who died young, but there was no information to confirm or deny it. So my notes were put in a file until the time came to track down Frederick Amelia Augusta Locke and perhaps even the mysterious Norbury. In 2004, the editors of The Lion and the Unicorn invited me to contribute a special, 
to contribute to a special issue on the subject of handmade literacies, a perfect venue for an essay on the Locke scrapbook. Although the secondary literature on scrapbooking suggested how much meaning could be teased out of an album's contents when its compiler was known, I had to find a way to write about the scrapbook that didn't depend on having already established the identity of the maker. Normally, um, criticism on scrapbooks assume that it's an exercise in fashioning the self through the presentation of memories. So if you have no idea who the maker is, you can't go very far to figure out what they're trying to do. The Locke album didn't really conform to that kind of a scrapbook as a self-conscious artifact anyway. It looked like a project for a rainy day or a convalescence when time needs to be killed. But according to the secondary sources, this kind of scrapbook hadn't existed before the Victorian era. So I decided to see if a rationale for scrapbooking as an entertaining but educational pastime for children could have existed in the late 18th century. First, the prints in the album. So where did Frederick find the images? Since he didn't have at hand the gorgeous array of scrap prints available to Victorian children, uh, this is, you know, you, you can see where you're supposed to cut it up. Especially like these, the heavily embossed chromolithographed picture sheets by Raphael Tuck. Here's one of dogs. Mind the subject. You'll see more dogs like this later. And of horses. The majority of images Frederick used came from prints published by Bowles and Carver, the third generation of an important family firm of London print and map sellers. Their stock included a type of print for children called lottery prints that had been on the market at least since the late 17th century. And these are the, these are the kinds of prints that Frederick was cutting up. And these are from the Coatsen collection. In fact, you can see where they've been dismembered for some project. Lotteries were small engravings, as you can see, covered with small pictures laid out in rows. They usually depict subjects such as social ranks, trades and professions, all kinds of humorous subjects, animals, plants, the seasons, sports and games. According to the descriptions in contemporary print sellers' catalogs, lotteries were, quote, chiefly intended for children to play with. That's all that's ever said. But Frederick must have had a stack at hand because I could identify that he cut out pictures from at least 12 different sheets. That was the easy part. Amusement probably was Frederick's main motive for cutting out prints to paste into the blank book. But what was he playing at? The answer to this question is not obvious because we know so little about the status of crafts as an activity for children in Georgian England, and almost as little about the purpose of lottery sheets. In print sellers' catalogs, they're often listed in the same section as Japaning prints, which were supposed to be cut up to decorate objects made of paper mache or tin. If prints for such purposes were readily available from print sellers, fancy stationaries, and art suppliers, then why are scrapbooks made by children, especially in the late 18th century, so uncommon? One possible explanation is that boys and girls were discouraged from making them. Although scrapbooking is consistent with our ideas about educational craft projects, it's possible it was at odds with the Georgian reverence for print media when found in the nursery. Many authors extorted their little readers to treasure their books because he who loved learning got fame. The naughty child, on the other hand, who did not respect the printed word almost always came to a gratifyingly gruesome and bad end. <laughs> Consider the notorious example of Hogarth's idle prentice, who threw his chapbook down on the floor underneath his loom, its torn pages prominently displayed. And you all know what happened to him. He was hung at Tyburn, and he deserved every <laughs> bit of it. Anyway, it's all because he didn't read his book. I don't make this up. It's, it's all over the place. Graphics seem to have been similarly, similarly revered. For Georgians without the means to buy paintings, prints were prized as a form of affordable art. As soon as the 10-year-old William Blake started drawing school, he began collecting prints for him to study. The great social reformer Sir Samuel Romilly observed that my father's taste for pictures and prints 
could hardly fail of being communicated to his children. I found a great source of amusement in turning over the prints he was possessed of and became a great admirer of pictures. Having access to a collection of prints then was considered something of a privilege. And if children were not to abuse books, then we might conclude neither were they to dismember prints. An activity like scrapbooking, so the argument would go, would be frowned upon because it was predicated upon the child destroying something precious simply to pass the time. On the other hand, prints could be an expendable commodity in an educational setting. People making instructional materials for children have long been pondering prints for images to paste into various kinds of books. Lady Eleanor Fenn, for example, described how she cut up prints to illustrate a book she was making for the child of a relative in the address to her reader, Cobwebs to Catch Flies, of 1783. And just this one example, I could give many others, stretching back to the 17th century, suggests the possibility that when Frederick Locke amused himself making a book from lottery sheets, his consumption of printed ephemera could have been justified on educational grounds. This seemed plausible enough to try and pursue. So I went a little further to ask, how specifically could compiling a scrapbook have united amusement with instruction? What would Frederick have learned, and why would it have been fun? And I have to ask for a certain suspension of disbelief here because some of the things that I'm going to describe as amusing are going to strike you all as, as precisely uh, anything but. But you, you'll, have to, you'll have to take it on faith at least that was the party line in a lot of um, pedagogical works. If I could figure out how lottery sheets were used then the educational aspects of Frederick's play with scissors, paste, and print might become clear. Now, lottery would have immediately called up the idea of state-sponsored or private drawings for prizes. And gambling is, of course, a form of play. But applications in the classroom probably strike us as limited or even antithetical. How could Georgians have linked the two ideas in the first place? Well, we, of course, can go back to John Locke's and thoughts concerning education, which includes very specific instructions or ways to modify dice so that learning letters and syllables can be turned into a play. And by a play, I'd like to suggest what Locke means is a pastime with the allure of a game of chance, only in the stakes are learning something valuable rather than money. Like dice... The lottery, whether it's a print, a game, <coughs> or a book illustration, are supposed to enliven lessons by introducing an element of chance. So once I decided that this was another idea that could be run with, then a rationale for scrapbooking starts to emerge. Frederick, of course, would have known that lottery referred to several dubious pleasures drawings for the distribution of prizes, various kinds of games of chance, and a form of divination or fortune-telling. Now, in all these apparently unrelated activities, the outcome is determined by drawing lots in the form of printed slips of paper, whether tickets or cards. And these were commercially available. For efficient production, the slips were printed in rows and separated by lines to facilitate division into units of uniform size. An uncut sheet of cards looked very much like children's lottery sheet because both are prints laid out in grids with a picture inside each box. Because of the similarities in design, either sheet can be regarded as a collection of images or as a set of illustrated cards ready to be separated. The similarity in format suggests that Georgians then might have associated any print genre called a lottery with games of chance. But the question is, which ones? The best-known 18th-century game by that name was a game of pure chance played for stakes with a standard deck of cards. It's difficult to see how lottery sheets like this, which you can see have a very miscellaneous character, would lend themselves to any game played with a standard deck. Particularly striking are differences in the representation of human faces. In a standard deck, the 
face cards feature highly stylized and rather abstract representation of the kings, queens, and knaves, whereas caricatures predominate in lottery sheets, usually regardless of their manufacturer. Now, caricatures were featured on non-standard decks of cards used to play games that are now largely forgotten. And Frederick might have been familiar with the version that sometimes went under the name of comic or amusing lottery. It was part game of chance, part moral instruction, played with a deck whose illustrations included the very same kinds of imagery as lottery sheets. In other words, there are comic types or stereotypes, emblems, and visualizations of familiar proverbs. This hybrid entertainment suggests the way lottery sheets were employed indirectly as an educational aid. When the cards illustrating types such as the flirtatious girl or the vainglorious soldier come into play, there's a player designated to read the corresponding devices aloud. And this is supposed to be an, inter, an edifying interlude before the banker pays out the winnings. <laughs> Character cards were also used for the selection of the couple to rule over Twelfth Night's Rebels, uh, a kind of amusement that starts to go out in the Victorian period. But you see it's the same thing. The, the sheets cut apart into the various characters. They're thrown into a hat, and as you come into the party, you draw, you draw one. Obviously, the people to draw the king and the queen rule the rebels for the night. However, those who draw the other cards, uh, can be asked to play the part of, of any of the characters they happen to have drawn. So you could be the shifty lawyer, or you could be the fishwife, or um, the air-headed um, bell at the end. Characters on lottery cards were not pure decoration like those on actual eight, early 19th century lottery tickets. Instead, the portraits offer points of departure for reading conversation or dramatic play, activities which were regarded as improving use of time. If comic types could be regarded as entertaining but inherently instructive, then the same subjects on lottery sheets would have also offered parents a way to initiate conversations with children about human nature, manners, and morals. And this fits in quite well with recent research that's being done on the importance of conversation, improving conversations in all aspects of educational provision for the middle and the upper classes during the period. Since figures like Honest John Grog or the Scott Sawney McGregor found their way into the pages of Frederick Locke's scrapbook, the boy probably enjoyed picking out types he recognized from contemporary dramas, books and prints, or perhaps people he actually knew. His parents or siblings might have asked him to describe how the characters he pasted into the album might behave. Now, most of the pictures on Frederick's lottery sheets um, were not comic characters, although they're some of the most striking that you see. But a lot of what's in the scrapbook are images of familiar things that are typically featured in illustrated books for very young children. Such objects were the staple of a third kind of lottery, for the same age group, an explicitly educational game of pure chance. And you've probably all played games like this yourself. They're still being manufactured, um, quite popular. And they're still known as lotto, whether you are a native speaker of English, Dutch, French, or German. This particular family of matching games for teaching vocabulary requires illustrated flashcards with or without a playing board in the form of a grid filled with pictures corresponding to the images on the cards. Georgian children like Frederick were likely to have seen a precursor of this kind of lottery during their reading lessons, especially if the parents subscribed to the progressive idea that introducing an element of play, that is chance or randomness, will brighten up reading instruction. Um, you have to, one thing you have to keep in mind is that this is a big, a big change from teaching reading primarily from rote memorization. It, it seems old hat to us because this is, of course, how we teach reading, but then I think it was a much more striking departure from what could be expected. Some mid-18th century authors of steady-selling vernacular spellers incorporated lotteries as a way of associating words and things. Lottery-like illustrations might double as a set of cards 
or a game board for innocent games of chance that could be substituted for tedious memorization. Okay. Uh, an example appears in The Child's New Plaything of 1745, and the anonymous author suggested that these leaves of alphabet cards could be cut up, put in a hat, and drawn as lots in games to teach letters. In John Newberry's Little Lottery Book for Children of 1756, each full-page illustration was designed as a two-sided card, letters and words on the recto, and an illustration with a caption on the verso. Now, these illustrations, unlike these alphabet cards, were to stay in the book. They weren't supposed to be separated into cards because they serve as the playing surface or the board for another kind of matching game. Uh, involves destroying the, p the picture, actually. The parent was supposed to give the child a pin and ask him to push it through one side of the card. And then the parent's supposed to flip over the, the page and show the child how the pin has simultaneously pierced the picture card that matches the initial letter of the word on the other side. So the lottery's potential in teaching vocabulary was perhaps best realized by Lady Eleanor Fenn, whom I mentioned a little earlier, and she devised many complex matching games for children throughout her long career as a devisor of educational games of all sorts, whether in books or complicated um, boxes of cards and various kinds of pictures. Her Mrs. Lovechild's book of 336 cuts for children consisted of 56 engraved plates. You see here's the lottery grid again, with a grid of six boxes filled with captioned images of everyday things. Now, if you think about it, the plate looks like a hand of six picture cards turned up on a table in three rows of two. The plates then could function as a collection of images or as the subs subsets of the whole set of 336 or as individual picture cards. The images are clearly separated from one another by the lines. Uh, to help the child's developing eye focus on one thing so the powers of concentration can gradually lengthen and strengthen. At the same time, the six cards in the hand represented on each plate are supposed to gratify a very young child's desire for novelty without distracting or overwhelming him with too many things at once. Likewise, a set of the plates with the 336 pictures arranged into 56 subsets facilitates extended browsing throughout the book because they're not organized according to a rigorous scheme. Uh, and that, that's a departure, something like uh, Comenius's uh, Orbis Sensualium Pictus has a very precise intellectual framework for what's in the picture, why it's arranged, what it's supposed to signify, and then its relation to all the other ones in the set. This doesn't have that kind of encyclopedic urge. So the design of the illustrations invite the teacher and pupil to engage in an innocent game of chance. Mother or child can lead in this game. And once the child becomes engrossed in searching with his mother through the lottery plates for matches or any subject that interests him, the real objective of learning the lesson is supposed to recede into the background. The sport lasts as long as the participants desire to play as there are no formal rules or educational uh, expectations dictated by, by the book itself. So Lady Fenn's sports in her books also create opportunities to talk about pictures, which I've already pointed out was supposed to be a privilege and pleasure for children. So what was most important about the matching game is it also grants the child a real measure of autonomy that he would have been denied in more traditional reading lessons. The child's put on a much more equal footing with the mother or the instructor. He has more power over the process of his learning than he would have enjoyed otherwise. So to late Georgian mothers who employed these kinds of sports and reading instruction, scrapbooking, I'd like to suggest, might have seemed like a very congenial way for little ones to take these kinds of competencies to another level. If Frederick Locke's mother had been familiar with Fenn's works, and indeed she probably was, she could have suggested that he fill up a blank album with images cut out of lottery prints. So while he's amusing himself, Frederick is developing his ability to choose, arrange, and name things from a large collection of disparate images. In addition to developing his aptitude for conceptualizing relationships between apparently unrelated objects, the making of the scrapbook also offers 
a means for acquiring some elementary artistic skills. Because what he's really doing is he's making a collage from random images. And by assembling those images, they can take on meanings of their own. And this is exactly what Frederick did, projecting personae, the annotated prints. Adult scrapbooks are almost always exercises in self-fashioning. Through the attempt to preserve the past through a collage of pictures, words, and printed ephemera, an adult helps to recapture some sense of the person she was and to communicate an idea of the individual she's become. A child, on the other hand, is less likely to be motivated by exactly the same urges. Walter Benjamin observed that a child makes such an object because he has an urge to collect. Now, Frederick did regard this album as a kind of collection and even went so far to give it the rather grand and obviously facetious title, A Very Valuable Collection of Frederick and Amelia's Portraits, as if it were a sale catalog of important paintings. For a small boy, Frederick went to considerable trouble to sustain the illusion that the album did indeed contain many portraits of himself and Amelia, his older sister, or here with his friends. That's the upper, the top one where they're playing cricket, and he's, he's written himself and two friends into the print. Uh, I should say, uh, probably most of the captions are in Amelia's hand rather than, than Frederick, since he would have been about between five and six at this point. <clears throat> um, let's see, Frederick mercilessly teased his sister when he annotated prints of the affected Miss Dorothy Dandel puppy as sweet little gentle Amelia, or the tippler Ginevra Kate as pretty sister Amelia. Naturally protean, Frederick cast himself in a wide variety of parts, alternately dashing, pathetic, and ridiculous. Frederick, I think, much preferred to imagine himself as a grown-up. He had no intention of acquiescing to his galling lot as the little master and younger brother. Frederick fancied he'd cut a fine figure when he grew up. Uh, you'll see, he's Frederick grown to a man. To cast himself as a handsome bearded grandee in a pink suit and a plumed hat riding a high-stepping horse. Frederick was as obsessed with fine horse flesh as a boy of today is with luxury cars. While clipping pictures of celebrated racehorses like Eclipse and Bucephalus, perhaps Frederick dreamed of owning a, a stable full of champions. Now Frederick also imagined himself as an expert marksman, but he may have taken this less seriously. Again, it's the upper, upper one. He imagined him, uh, the cut he captioned Frederick shooting is the ape-turned sportsman in which a monkey, accompanied by a hound, takes careful aim at a rabbit. Now, Frederick's annotation of the ape-turned sportsman reveals one of his most engaging qualities, an exuberant sense of humor acutely attuned to the comic potential of transformation. He gleefully monkeyed around with all the simian images in the album, turning them into self-portraits, which probably reflect his more mischievous impulses. If you'll go down to the bottom, between the night watchman and the old witch is another one, a tiny cut of an ape holding a rose, which he identified rather naughtily as Frederick Undressed. In <laughs> uh, this next one, he wrote, "Dear, it's at the bottom, uh, Dear Frederick and his friend, uh, above the diminutive picture of a monkey in a red coat dancing with a hat, and added the quip below, the likest portrait in the collection, drawn in his favorite writing apparel. <laughs> like any well-brought-up child, he probably secretly admired zany characters who appeared to him as gloriously free from the constraints that adults were forever imposing. Uh, if he were the night watchman, Roger McRapham, which was on the previous one, there would be no regular bedtime. If we were to dabble in astronomy like the projector crucible Little Wit then no one would forbid him to heat up dangerous substances in breakable glass vessels. Or, if he were swill-gut bacon face, he might never be denied a taste of those tempting delicacies that Mama said were unwholesome for children. Now, these droll fantasies of liberation were not, however, the only scenarios that Frederick imagined. 
He reinterpreted several comic pictures of low characters as episodes in which he bravely struggled against adversity, his big sister by his side. Back to the ballad singers. Notice their, how they're joined up in this raffish trio of street musicians, Frederick and Emilian co-reduced to poverty. Now, he's cast himself as the dog with a fiddle. He casts himself as a dog elsewhere in the album. And Amelia as the cat singing a ballad. Again, he gives his sister the, uh, <clears throat> how should we say, at least a, a part of the two. Too young, perhaps, to grasp the actual consequences of a precipitous reversal in circumstances, Frederick seems to regard poverty as a lark that offered the opportunity to slip into disguise and go slumming. Perhaps it also represented an escape from an existence secure and sheltered, but predictable. Frederick's attitudes about courtship and marriage were just as cavalier. His proximity to sisters of marriageable age seemed to have convinced him that love made girls take leave of their senses. Reinterpreting pictures of adult men as prospective brothers-in-law afforded Frederick a priceless opportunity to lord it over the young ladies. Armed with a father's power to dispose of their hands, he had great fun making wildly unsuitable matches for them. Uh, Frederick gave away his other sister, Augusta, to Sir Lucius O'Trigger, the inept fortune hunter in Richard Sheridan's play, The Rivals. Poor Amelia fared no better. Frederick married her off to him, Monsieur Le Frog, a Frenchman. We say no more. <laughs> in its thematic concerns, curiosity about forbidden topics and raucous but good-humored sarcasm, Frederick's scrapbook has all the hallmarks of an authentic production by a child. When he assembled the scrapbook, he seemed to be consciously shaping the raw materials as if he were composing embryonic picaresque narratives in which older versions of himself and Amelia zigzag from the heights to the depths of human existence. There's also a very touching one where uh, he, has, he has the two of them side by side when they're 30 years older as if they're still going to be best friends. Brief as Frederick's additions to the Prince are, they still reveal some of the most important characteristics of child writing, what O.J. Cockshut has described as the precocious child writer's constant yearning to grow up, to imitate sensations, which cannot yet be felt in an adult way. And last but not least, the children who made the scrapbook, Frederick and Amelia Locke of Norbury Park. The deadline for the essay was not very far away, and I still didn't know the identities of Frederick and Amelia. Over lunch with Bill McCarthy, who's just completed a biography of uh, the woman writer Anna Letitia Barbeau, I asked him for some help with the problem. He thought for a minute, and suggested looking for a genealogy of William Locke of Norbury Park in a biography he wasn't sure Princeton owned. Well, he remembered wrong. Within five minutes of fetching the Duchessa Sermonetta's Locks of Norbury, the story of a remarkable family from the stacks, I had the answer. And it turned out that my hunch from the first time I opened up the scrapbook had pretty much been dead on. And there's Frederick about the age he made the scrapbook in this beautiful um, pastel portrait by the very young Thomas Lawrence. His, uh, Frederick's father gave Lawrence some of his first important portrait commissions. He was probably only about 19 when he did that. Not Frederick, the Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> Frederick Locke was the sixth child and beloved youngest son of William Locke, 1732 to 1810, and Frederica Augusta Schaub, who, who uh, died in 1832. A wealthy couple distinguished for their mutual devotion, elegant manners, and exquisite taste. Norbury Park, the Locks Villa in Surrey near Box Hill, was the subject of an entire chapter in William Gilpin's observations on the western parts of England, a survey of the region's outstanding natural features, architecture, and parklands. William and Frederica Locke much preferred their retired life at Norbury Park to London's brilliant whirl. At home in Surrey, they could quietly cultivate intellectual pursuits and domestic pleasures with their children, William Jr., Charles, George, Augusta, Amelia, and Frederick. More than one person used the adjective sensible 
amiable, ingenious, and divine to describe the attractive and talented locks. Their affectionate, close-knit circle, much like that of the Austin family, provided the kind of supportive and stimulating environment in which so many gifted children thrive. William Locke Jr. had displayed such conspicuous talent for drawing that at age seven his work attracted the attention of connoisseurs. Uh, Henry Fusley admired uh, his, his work as a teenager and encouraged him to go on and be a professional artist, which he didn't do. An entire room filled of sculptures, casts, and antiques known as the picture room had been furnished for William Jr. as a complete study for the painter. Everyone in the family, however, including little Frederick, was welcome there. The Locke family's interest in the arts was not confined to painting. Among their acquaintances was the celebrated Mrs. Delaney, who produced remarkably accurate botanical specimens in the form of paper mosaics, which she composed from carefully cut out pieces of colored papers pasted together on backgrounds of cardboard. At Norbury Park, collaborative projects involving some form of decoupage were not unusual. The family took considerable pleasure in designing and executing elaborate pieces of fancy work which were destined for the Norbury Park booth at the annual fair in the neighboring village of Leatherhead. Guests at Norbury Park were expected to join in the production of objects like these, little boxes decorated with paintings and collages of flowers and garlands all hand-colored. So children growing up in such an artistic environment probably would have assembled an album full of cut-out lottery sheets. Scrapbooking was probably regarded by the locks as a delightful preliminary to the more complicated and rewarding activities to come. One can imagine Amelia helping Frederick with the more difficult bits that required patience and attention to detail, like laying out the prints into simple but effective compositions or showing him how little paste was needed to make the prints stick to the backgrounds. Children working together on these kinds of entertaining educational activities was also recommended as a way of fostering closer ties within a family in such well-known educational works such as Madame de Genlis, um, The Evenings in, in the Castle, or in Aiken and Barbro's Evenings at Home. And making a book of some kind was a popular choice. Among the examples that have survived is the little collection of original stories that the novelist Fanny Burney's nieces, Sophia and Francis, wrote out as a gift for their five-year-old Cecilia. And interestingly enough, there are a number of pictures of Frederick and Amelia in this manuscript at the Morgan Library. Uh, this would, uh, my guess is maybe Frederick is home from school. Uh, this is beautifully hand-colored. It's by their uncle, um, Edward, Ed, Edward Francesco Bernie. And Amelia is feeding him bread and milk in the famous um, round uh, drawing room that was painted with uh, landscape and round. These kinds of projects may have appealed quite strongly to Francophiles like William and Frederica Locke if they cherished any hopes that Norbury Park would serve as that ideal treat Rousseau envisioned for raising children away from the Beaumont's pernicious influences. Perhaps the Locks encouraged the children to make scrapbooks a way of reinforcing the idea that the rewards of self-cultivation in the country were superior to any pleasures fashionable life could offer. The idyllic existence at Norbury Park might have remained largely private if Fanny Burney and her favorite sister, Fanny, Susan Burney Phillips, had not been among the Locks' most intimate friends. The Phillips lived in a cottage in Mickleham, which was just a short distance from Norbury Park. Uh, they, they lived there between 1786 and 1791 when Fanny was a member of Queen Charlotte's household at Windsor. Many pages in the long, detailed journal letters that Susan and Mrs. Locke wrote to Fanny about the peaceful but busy days at Norbury were enlivened frequently by accounts of little Frederick's antics between the ages of two and five. He was, this is kind of sickening. He was nicknamed Baby Feddy to distinguish him from his mother, Frederica, who was called Freddy for short. The connection between the Bernies and the Locks puts a variety of images Frederick chose for the scrapbook in quite a different light. The handsome equestrian portrait of George III, for example, could be interpreted simply as boyish hero worship of a famous but remote figure. But the king was, in fact, a very real person to Frederick. Having heard Susan and his mother talk about Fanny's life at court on so many occasions, 
he inquired of his mother upon her return from Windsor whether the king and queen had asked after him, as if it were the most natural thing in the world. <laughs> Anecdotes like this explain why Susan pronounced Frederick a wonderful little creature in intelligence when he was barely two. Her transcriptions of his actual words confirm this assessment. When Frederick was 23 months old, Susan wrote down an exchange in which he tried to con his mother that the prohibition against sweetmeats ought to be rescinded that evening. Mama told him that burnt almonds were not good for him. Are good, he said, looking gravely at her, some very much indeed. <laughs> he would taste my toast and water, but soon pushed it from him, exclaiming, Eh, too nasty. Such expressions sound very curious, as Augusta says, in the mouth of an infant not yet 23 months old, but it is a most extraordinary infant. As he grew older, Frederick's remarks continued to exhibit an endearing combination of close observation, shrewd insight, and infant wit. On one evening when his parents arrived home at Norbury after another visit to Fanny Burney at Windsor Castle, Frederick kissed his mother's gloves, greeting her with the gallant words, I can kiss anything dirty of yours, Mama, because you're always so clean. <laughs> a boy who had this facility with language by age four was surely capable of six at annotating the prints in the scrapbook, even with some help from his big sister. Now, Frederick may have been Susan Bernie Phillips' clever darling, but he was not necessarily a mama's boy. Behind the occasional display of bravado in the scrapbook, there was some swagger. We'll go back to the cover. Notice that the first image is the large cut entitled Boys Fighting. It shows two boys struggling, pulling hair, and scratching. Now, this does not seem entirely consistent with the character Frederick has been given thus far. However, as a toddler, he did not play nicely with others and frequently became very aggressive, pushing, scratching, and biting other children between the ages of one and two for his pastime. Now, not even his best friend, Susan's son, Charles Norbury Phillips, known as Norbury or Nordia, was spared when Frederick was in a temper. One morning when Susan and the children were visiting the locks, Norbury slapped Frederick in the face. On this occasion, Frederick made no resistance, but retreated to his nurse, reporting, a very naughty boy come beat Fetty, and Fetty a fade of a naughty boy. <laughs> Although the boys made up almost immediately, Susan was sufficiently displeased made by Norbury's behavior that she asked Frederick about the incident later the day in the presence of the rest of the family. I found Fetty in the picture room and told him I was sorry to hear such a naughty boy had been there in the morning. He looked very grave and shaking his head, Fetty, Fetty, naughty boy. Mm -hmm. What was it he did, my little Frederick? I said, tell me. What did he do? Scratch eyes out, he said, looking very fiercely. Mr. Locke laughed with us very much and said, Do you observe his piety? He never did such a thing as scratch or fight in his life. But he's left it off now, said his dear mother. No, he is not, I can assure you, cries Brother George, much louder. I'm sure he can scratch and pinch too very well, Mrs. Locke, as I can witness. <laughs> now, Norbury makes his only appearance in the album in the guise of the Viscount Vengeance, crossing sabers with Frederick's alter ego, Lord Fury. Frederick's caption reads, Norbury and Frederick arrived at manhood. So the cut of brawling boys turns out to have been a pretty truthful reflection of their highly physical and competitive friendship. Perhaps Frederick felt somehow inferior to Norbury, whose father had been lionized for his bravery in defending Captain Cook the day he was struck down by the natives in the Sandwich Islands. To a small boy, Molworth Phillips must have stepped out of the page of, of a book of voyages and explorations. Undoubtedly, the locks were too discreet, as well as devoted to Susan, to discuss Molworth Phillips' very real and egregious faults as a husband and father in front of the children. If the contrast between Phillips, the naval officer, and William Locke Sr., a gentleman reputed to have the most perfect manners in England, struck Frederick at all, he may have wanted to prove to Norbury and to himself that he was a real boy. 
Frederick's fascination with horses and field sports may have also stemmed partly from the awareness that he was growing up in a highly rarefied environment that limited his exposure to many normal things. Perhaps when Frederick cast himself as the sportsman, it was a small gesture of defiance against his parents, who neither liked nor approved of hunting. If so, he was emulating his eldest brother, William, who distanced himself from the Norbury Park Circle by beginning to ride to the hounds at age 20. Frederick's story, as it turns out, has an unhappy ending. And there he is in another um, portrait by Lawrence, probably when he's about 16 or 17. He had contracted tuberculosis in early childhood, and in 1805, at age 19, was sent to Italy for his health. En route, he ruptured a blood vessel and was forced to go ashore at Madeira, where he died a few days later. Amelia's husband, John Angerstein, son of the founder of Lloyd's of London, went over immediately to collect Frederick's property and make arrangements for burial there. The manhood that Frederick anticipated in his scrapbook thus was never realized. Yet ironically enough, had he lived to a ripe old age, the scrapbook probably would not have been preserved. It's a well-known fact that most juvenilia is destroyed or tossed into the trash by its creators when they get older. But I hope I've shown you why Amelia and Mrs. Locke would have saved this album as a relic of little Fetty. His engaging personality is somehow present on almost every page. Unprepossessing, but nevertheless richly suggestive, his scrapbook bears witness to the extraordinarily complex interactions between image, text, child, family, and culture in the process of becoming literate. Thank you. Stephen Roxburgh told me the following story. Told him... Uh, senior moment, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the most famous children's author in America. You mean Sendak? Thank you. So Sendak is illustrating, is uh, autographing books, bored, and there's a long line of parents and children sneaking their way up to him where he's signing. And he goes interested in one boy in line with his father because the boy is very angry and is finally pushed, squirming, in front of Sendak to hold his book up to be autographed. And Sendak whispers to the kid, what's wrong? And the kid says, I don't want you to crap up my book. <laughs> Join the speaker in the first floor lounge of Alderman Library for further conversation and also a tour of about 425 Fair Book School and Book Arts Press posters. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.